32 is unacceptable. Forget the fact there are 25 minutes of previews. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she says, Brett, it's okay if we're a few minutes late to the previews. Au contraire. I love the previews as well, right? I love that. But I also want to have a really great seat. Now, generally, in a family, you'll have a husband or a wife who's like, we have to be there before the movie starts. And the other one's like, oh, it's not so bad. You know why this is, don't you? Because God loves to laugh, right? (laughs) There are more arguments about the movie theater about what time you get there. Now, more than being late to previews, the thing I despise the most is being late to the film itself. And I would imagine we can all agree on this one. Nobody likes to show up to a film 20 minutes in. Why? Because you don't get the whole thing, right? You can show up and you can jump into a movie and you can go, okay, well, I understand this piece or I understand that. I'm not sure if that connected to that over there. And you can find your way a bit through the movie, but if you just show up 20 minutes in, 40 minutes in, 60 minutes into a film, you miss much of the entire storyline. And I wonder how often this is how we read the Bible. We jump right on in and it's like, yes, we can understand this part and we can understand how it relates maybe to this and this, but to really get the whole grand narrative of the story of the Bible, for many of us, we have never really had a chance to experience that. And that's what we're going to get to do this evening. The goal is this, that we are going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way to Revelation 22. And we're going to do this in less than the normal Disney children's film, all right? And we're going to tackle the entire thing, every major movement, every major character, every major aspect in order for us to get an understanding of this grand narrative of the Bible. And my goal is this. If you have been a follower of Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I hope you leave here this evening going, man, there are just some things that I never knew were connected. And I understand the Bible much deeper. And for those of you who are here this evening who you are brand new and you're like, I don't know much about the Bible at all, I hope that you have a chance to leave here this evening going, I now understand what the Bible is all about. And so for our time period, for this first session, we are going to fill this screen with a timeline. And here's the really good news for all of you. At our break... At the door, you will be able to be given the graphic that looks identical to what I'm going to put up on this screen. So for this time, you can just sit back, relax, take it in. It is being audio recorded. I have actually done this before. It's on my website. I'll let you know about it later on in the evening if you want to watch the visual again. But I will make this quick caveat. For you, I've added about 40 new slides, all right? So this has never been done for anybody with all of the additional imagery and all of that. So I will let you know about that. But for what you see on the screen for the timeline, you will get on your way out. Does that sound like a deal? All right. So let me warn you, buckle up. We've got a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot in the Bible, all right? Genesis 1-1, here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was void and empty. Darkness was over the land, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the Bible, waters is a picture of chaos. And the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And then God speaks, and he creates light, and the universe bursts into existence. And God creates the sun, and he creates the moon, and he creates the stars, and he creates planets, minus Pluto, all right? Now, he created Pluto, but apparently Pluto's no longer a planet. But God creates planet, and palm trees, and porcupines, and funky little fish that puff up when scared. And he creates humanity. And it is a beautiful and vibrant world. A world that God is thoroughly pleased with. Because seven times in the opening part of the story, we get God saying, it is good. It is good. And in chapter 1, we find that when it comes to humanity, we are told that we are created in the image of God. Now, we understand that God is actually Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is really helpful to recognize that God is a community unto God's self. And when it is stated that we are created in the image of God, that we are relational beings. We have been created to function in relationships. And what the Bible lays out for us in the Genesis story is that there are four major relationships in life. The first relationship is our relationship to God. The second relationship is the relationship we have with ourself. The third relationship is what we have with others. And the fourth is the relationship we have with creation. Now the term that we use to talk about the goodness of God's creation when God creates it here in Genesis 1 and 2, is the word shalom in Hebrew. Now, when we say the word shalom in Hebrew, we often translate that into English as what? Peace, yes. But the problem is, is that when we hear the word peace, we think an absence of conflict or serenity of the inner soul. But the Hebrew word shalom is much more encompassing than just that. In fact, shalom means wholeness, well-being, prosperity. Everything is as God intends it to be. And there is shalom in the garden. And then you have Genesis chapter 2, which is a more focused account of God creating Adam and Eve. Now what's interesting is that God creates Adam and then he brings him into the garden and he will eventually create Eve, which is really helpful because man and woman come from different places. That should solve a lot of our problems right there, recognizing that. God creates Adam. He brings him into the garden, and God says, Adam, I want to partner with you. You steward my creation, and that you can now take my purposes forward. And in the midst of God bringing Adam into the garden, God says to Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die which is God's way of introducing to Adam 
the reality that if Adam disobeys and sin enters the created order, death comes with it because death and sin are linked together. And God says to Adam, Adam, I need you to obey me about this tree. And God then creates Eve. And we come into Genesis chapter 3. And we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Because they do not obey God about the tree. And all of a sudden, sin and death are introduced officially into the story. Friends, sin and death were never part of the original story. Brokenness, pain, cancer, hurricanes. None of this was supposed to be part of the story. But when Adam and Eve took of the tree, it fractured everything in creation. And all four of these relationships are affected. And you see this very clearly in the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 3. So listen to what is written here. And what I'm going to do is in some cases I'm going to read passages. In some cases I'm going to recite passages. And in some cases I'm going to put the passages up on the screen. These are a few verses that I'm going to read. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now God didn't lose them. Right? This is not why God asks the question. But the very fact that God has to ask the question indicates that the relationship between us and God is now broken. Then notice what happens next, because now Adam is going to answer God's question, and here's what's fascinating about Genesis 3 up to this point, that every reference to Adam and Eve is in the plural. They, themselves, them, it's all plural language. And then listen to Adam responds in verse 10, and Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin is a focus upon ourselves. And now this relationship with ourself has been fractured. And then immediately after that, God says in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The first instance of the blame game. God, it's your fault because you put this woman here. And now the relationship we have with others is fractured. And then we also see that in verse 17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. And our relationship to creation has been fractured. See, friends, when God created the world, he created it as a place of shalom. 
that there was wholeness, goodness. Everything was as God intended it to be. And in that garden, there was shalom. But friends, with one act of rebellion, everything shattered. And the shalom that God had created was now in fractured pieces all over the floor of creation. And something amazing happens in this moment. Because God doesn't then look on all the broken pieces of creation and go, huh, that didn't happen the way that I thought it would. Let's just scrap all these pieces and start anew. No, no, no. God looks on the broken pieces of creation and he says, I'm going to put the whole thing back together. And we can just simply say in this moment, God says, what I am now about is the restoration of all things. And in the garden, God says to the snake, he says, listen, because of what you have been part of, there will come someone of whose heel you will strike, but he will crush your head. And God goes, I'm going to set out to put all of the pieces back together. And so immediately after this, you have from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, you have this wickedness and brokenness just being spun completely out of control so that through the flood and through the Tower of Babel, God has to get a little bit of order again. But where things really start to pick up with the restoration project of God for the restoration of all things comes in Genesis chapter 12 with a guy by the name of Abram. Listen to what is recorded in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to a man by the name of Abram who will later be called Abraham. Listen to these words. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is just astounding that God comes to a man and says, listen, I want to partner with you for the restoration of all things. And what's interesting to me about this is that God looks on the broken pieces of creation and could have God put the whole thing back together by himself? Yes, absolutely. But for whatever reason, God comes to Abram and he says, I want to partner with you and your descendants to put this whole thing back together. And what we see here is God continuing his desire to partner with humanity to take his purposes forward. It actually began with Adam in the garden. Adam, I've created this good world. Go, steward this thing, grow this, do something with it, organize it, order it. 
And now Adam has failed, and it's like God's call to Abram is God's answer to the failure of Adam. And that in part, God's restoration project starts to ramp up when God says to Abram, I want to partner with you to put this whole thing back together. And God says, and this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to pour my blessings into you, and then you're going to pass that on to others. Which is really interesting because what God is saying here is, Abram, you are blessed for the sake of others. Which is how blessing is always intended to work. And this is how it is in the scriptures. That when you receive a blessing, it is never intended just for you alone. It's that you become the conduit through which God can use that blessing to also bless others. Now, how are they going to do this? Well, God says to Abram here in Genesis 12 verse 1, I want you to leave your land and family. These are the two most important things in the ancient world. And God says, I want you to leave your land and family, and I will give you new land, and I will give you a family. Which is really great news, because Abram has almost reached the century mark, and he has no kids. Now, it's in Genesis chapter 15, where God has a covenant-cutting ceremony with Abram, where he says, I will indeed give you land, and I will give you family. Now, God says he's going to come, and he's going to partner himself with Abram and his descendants. The question becomes, what are Abram and his descendants supposed to be about in order to adequately live into this identity as a partner with God for the restoration of all things? Well, good news. That comes three chapters later in Genesis chapter 18. So in Genesis chapter 18, this is what we read in verse 18. God is speaking here and he says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham that which he has promised him. Now, your text will say what is right and just. These are literally the words justice and righteousness. Now, justice and righteousness is actually two forms of justice. They're both justice, but they're distinct forms of justice. And we just translate them from the Hebrew as justice and righteousness, but the Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. Let me hear you say mishpat. Good, we're going to get a little bit of your Hebrew on tonight, all right? Mishpat is a word that means retributive justice or legal justice. The idea is, is if you're going to have a healthy and functioning society, there are rules and regulations that need to be adhered to. People have rights, and if somebody stomps on those rights, there needs to be a system in place to make sure that the rest of the world knows, or the rest of the community knows, this isn't okay. There needs to be a legal system for a healthy and thriving society. That is the word mishpat. Now, the word righteousness is the word zedakah. Let me hear you say, I'm sorry, zedakah. Let me hear you say zedakah. Zedekah means distributive justice or social justice. Now, do not hear socialism in this. God is totally fine with people having wealth. It's what you do with your wealth that matters. The idea of Zedekah 
righteousness is that everybody is entitled to having their basic needs met. And God goes, we need a legal system of justice and we need a system of social justice. And God goes, this is what my people need to be about. Indeed, Psalm 89, 14 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The foundation of God's very throne is this idea of mishpat and zedekah. And here's what you also need to understand. If we are in the pursuit of the restoration of all things, to regain the shalom that was shattered in the garden, understand something very key. There is no shalom without justice. Shalom encompasses more than just justice. It's just nothing less than justice. And so God says, this is what my people are going to be about. Well, Abraham and his, and his uh, wife, Sarah, they're going to have a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac will have a wife by the name of Rebekah. Rebekah will have twins, Jacob and Esau. The storyline follows Jacob. Jacob will have a few wives, and he will have 12 sons. Now, here's what most people don't know about Jacob. Is he actually had 13 children. He also had a daughter. Her name is Dina. She always gets left out of the conversation, and she never gets her due. Okay, we just gave her her due, and now we got to get back to the boys, all right? The storyline follows the 11th son, the guy by the name of Joseph, right? You know the dude with the coat of many colors. And through a number of circumstances in which his brothers are a part of it at first, Joseph is sold into slavery and he ends up in Egypt and through some God-ordained events, he ends up number two in control of all of Egypt behind Pharaoh. There is a massive famine around the known world at this time. And as a result of God allowing Joseph and his brothers and his families to be reunited, Joseph says to his father Jacob and to all of the descendants, which are 70 at this point, move from Canaan, come to Goshen, which is in the northeast part of the Nile Delta, and settle here and I will be able to take care of you. And so the book of Genesis ends with the 70 moving to the land of Egypt. Exodus begins, the family has now become a nation. They have been fruitful and they have increased in number. And the Pharaoh is concerned because there's actually historical precedence for this that a bunch of Semites living up in the Goshen area are going to come into the interior of Egypt and they're going to take over the country. And Pharaoh's preemptive strike is to enslave the Israelites as people who work under the boot of Pharaoh. And so Israel is now enslaved to the most powerful empire in the world at this time of Egypt. And so they're enslaved here, and their role and responsibility within Egypt is that of making mud bricks. And this is their life. And in their misery and in their slavery, they cry out to God. And God hears their cry because God is a God who always hears the cry of the oppressed. Because God is a God of both legal justice and social justice as well. It's the foundation of his throne.
And so God is going to respond. So he comes to a guy by the name of Moses who is leading a bunch of sheep and goats in the Sinai wilderness. And God shows up to Moses and says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I have come down to act. And Moses, you and I are going to work together to get the people out of Egypt. Now God not only responds because he hears the cry of the oppressed, but also because all the way back in Genesis 12, God said to Abram, I'm partnering with you and your descendants. Friends, understand, Israel is the plan. There is no plan B. And the plan can't do what the plan is designed to do if it's enslaved in Egypt. So when God comes to Moses, he says, I want you to partner with me to get the Israelites out. It's so that the plan can do what the plan was designed to do. Well, Moses doesn't quite think he's up for the task. God does a really good convincing campaign because God is really good at that. And then God also allows Moses to be joined by his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. And they together will lead the charge of getting the Israelites out of Egypt. God, with a mighty right hand, brings ten plagues onto the Egyptians. They are able to come out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army pursue the Israelites. They come to what the text actually says is the Reed Sea. We'll say the Red Sea, but literally in Hebrew it's the Reed Sea. And God pulls back the walls of water. The Israelites go through on dry ground. And when they're on the east side of the shores of the Reed Sea, God brings the wall of water to eliminate the Egyptians. And now they are free of their oppressors. And on the eastern shore of the Sea of Reeds, they proclaim, God, you are Lord and King. And God goes, well, that's really great that you call me Lord and King. But we need to now go to Mount Sinai so that we can talk about what it looks like now that we can be back into relationship with one another. So now we come to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And let me read to you what happens in Exodus 19. It's been about 45 days from the time that they've left Egypt until they come to Mount Sinai. And this is what God says through Moses to the people. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now these are lots of really great terms that we could have explored. Uh, treasured possession, holy nation. What I want to center on is this phrase right here, a kingdom of priests. Now, this is a loaded phrase of identity and mission, and I need to actually illustrate it for you. So here's what I need. I need three people to join me on stage real quick. Can I have a couple of volunteers? Yes, you. Come right up here. Perfect. Who else wants to come up? Anybody else? You want to come up here? Perfect. All right, I need a dude. Come on up here. Fantastic. All right. Let's give them a round of applause for coming and joining us up here. Perfect. I'm Brad. You are? Maggie. Taylor. Elijah. Elijah. Oh, that's a good biblical name. I might need you up here a little later on. All right. So Maggie, Taylor, and Elijah. All right. Perfect. So let's do this. Um, Elijah, I'm going to have you come on over here. Maggie, you are in a perfect setting. You are going to stand right here in the middle. And Taylor, you're perfect right there. Now... Israel has just come out of Egypt. 
arguably the most theocratic society the world has ever seen. More than 1,500 gods and goddesses have been identified from ancient Egypt. If you go to Egypt today, as you did back in two, 3,000 years ago, there's two things you predominantly see. You see pyramids, which are tombs, by the way, and you see temples. Why? Because there are gods and goddesses everywhere. Kingdom of priests is temple language. So I'm going to give us a temple scene for what the Israelites would have understood when God says you are to be for me a kingdom of priests. They would have been like, we get it. For us, we're like, we don't get it. All right, so let's get it here in this moment. So this is a temple scene right here. Here's what we're going to do. Taylor is our goddess. All right, don't let this go to your head. Okay, but you're our goddess. And this is her temple right here. Elijah is a worshiper. And we have Maggie right here is our priest. Now, if you come to a temple to worship the god or the goddess, guess what? You don't get to meet with the god or goddess. They are off limits and everybody understands that. So the understanding is, is that if you have a sacrifice to give, a gift to give, you want to worship the deity, you come and you meet with the priest. Because the priest is someone who mediates on behalf of the divine. They stand between the worshiper slash world, if you will, and the god or goddess themselves. Now, they do this as one who mediates on behalf of the divine to the world because it was understood that you were authorized by the goddess to serve as the hands and feet of the goddess in the world. What's more is that it was understood that if you were a priest of a god or goddess, you were the greatest representation of what the goddess was like so that when the worshiper met with the priest, it was as if the worshiper was meeting with the goddess herself. And get this. God says to Israel, this is you. You are to be a kingdom of priests. You mediate on behalf of me and the rest of the world. You serve as my hands and feet because we're in partnership with one another. And what's more, you are to be the greater representation of what I am like. So that when the world meets with you, it's as if they are meeting with me myself. How you choose to conduct your business. How you treat your spouse. How you go about treating the poor and needy. How you live your life. All of this is supposed to speak to the kind of God that you serve. And God goes not only that, but you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. And what's more, is I'm then going to put you into the most highly trafficked area of the entire ancient world. And I'm going to bring all of the nations through your area so that they can interact with you and begin to learn something about me. This is the identity of God's people. And Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 says, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a kingdom of priests. We got it? All right, can we give them a round of applause? Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you, Maggie. Delighted. Thanks, man. I like that shirt, dude. All right, so this is all taking place at Mount Sinai. 
So once God has said, hey, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, he actually says to the people, do you want in? And the people come back through Moses and they say, oh yeah, we're in. And God goes, great. Now let's talk about what this looks like. And God is going to give him, give Israel his word. Now what the actual Hebrew term is, is just the word Torah. Let me hear you say Torah. This is probably the one Hebrew word, maybe with shalom, that you have heard before. Now, here's the problem we have in the West when it comes to our interpretation of the Hebrew word Torah. We translate it as law. It doesn't mean law in the way we think law. As this wooden, restrictive, impersonal type of system. Actually, the word Torah literally means teachings, instructions. These are living, dynamic, relational. In the minds of the Hebrew people, Torah literally means God's instructions for life. Now, here's what's fascinating about when you look more deeply into Exodus 19 and 20, is that what God is doing with Israel at Mount Sinai is he's actually engaging in a wedding ceremony. He is marrying himself to Israel. And later prophets will pull back on this or they'll talk about this. And when you understand what God's Torah is like, what his word is like, is that when God marries Israel, his wedding gift to his bride are his very words, his commandments. They were intended to breed life. And when God says to Israel, we are in relationship to one another. If you are in, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Israel says, we are in. God goes, great. If we're in partnership with one another and you're supposed to reflect me in the world, then let me tell you what I expect of you so that you can embody me in the world so that we can partner well for the restoration of all things. And this is when God gives them Torah. It is a gift for their journey ahead. Right after this, God says, okay, Moses, I want you all to build me a tabernacle. And here's what's really cool about the language in Exodus 25. God says, I want you to build for me a tabernacle, not that I may dwell in it. The text that God says, so that I may dwell in them. God has the tabernacle built so that he can move into the neighborhood with his people. God is passionately pursuing humanity, and he's been doing it since the very beginning of human history. Well, friends, here's the sad news, is that you can take Israel out of Egypt, but it's really hard to get Egypt out of Israel. And they struggle in the desert. Around the time of the tabernacle, you have the golden calf, which is a harbinger of other events to come. Namely, what happens when you have them with the spies incident. They were only supposed to spend two years in the desert, and as a result of the spies incidents, they spend an extra, oh, 38 years in the desert. Okay, that was a big boo-boo on their part. And they're in the desert, in the Sinai desert. And by the way, we call this the desert wanderings. (laughs) Friends, they're not lost. They know where they're going. Moses has been leading a flock of sheep and goats in the very same desert for the previous 40 years. They know where they're going, and what's more, God is leading them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. 
They know where they're going. God is just keeping them from moving into the land because they haven't been the kind of, become the kind of people yet to embody his message to be placed into the most highly trafficked area of the entire ancient world to do what God is asking them to do. And so they spend another 38 years in the desert. And then you have what is known as the period of the conquest and the judges. So Moses will die on the east side of the Jordan River. A guy by the name of Joshua will take over. He'll come in the land and there will be a time known as the conquest where they're getting the promised land. And then you have a period of the judges, which is one of the darkest, most depraved times in all of Israel's history. Twelve judges are mentioned in the story. When you hear judge, don't think of somebody sitting behind a big wooden desk with a gavel in hand. This is a leader who rises up among the people. The twelfth and final judge is a guy by the name of Samson. He's an absolute train wreck. It's a really crazy, bizarre story. I actually wrote a book on it. Okay, I'll let you know about that a little bit later. But it's a fascinating story about how Samson almost single-handedly spins the story into the ground. And then immediately after him, you have a very important linchpin character by the name of Samuel who spins it back out of the dirt and starts moving in the direction that will eventually become the monarchy. Now, the problem with the monarchy is that God was supposed to be Israel's king. And when the people basically rose up and said, yeah, but we want a king like us, God goes, all right, well, how about, uh, how about Saul? And what's fascinating about Saul is that his name literally means asked for. God goes, you asked for it? You get it. And boy, did they get what they asked for. This did not go well. By the way, how characters are introduced in the Bible is actually very important. The writer is specifically helping you understand of what's to come. What's the first thing we know about Saul? Does anybody know how he's first introduced in the story? He can't find a pack of donkeys. Reads really funny in the King James, by the way. This is how he starts. How is he to lead Israel if he can't find donkeys? This is already supposed to let you know things aren't going to go well. Okay. By the way, you're allowed to laugh. Like, the Bible is hilarious. Like, when you just, like, slow down long enough and see what's in the Bible, like, the Bible is hysterical in what it's trying to help you to see. And the word plays are all over. They asked for it. They got it. And it didn't go well. After Saul, we have King David, the man after God's own heart. But just like everybody before him and just like everybody after him, minus Jesus, people have really good times and they have really, really low times. And the Bible holds out, doesn't hold out on any of the dirty laundry. I mean, the Bible just puts it out there. But among the highest of heights for David comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has in his heart this desire to create a temple for God to reside in because prior to this point there has been the tabernacle where God has localized his presence, his Shekinah, his Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. And David says, but I want to build you a house. And God says, it's not for you to do. It's going to be for your son. But listen to what God says in this astounding passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 and following. The Lord declares to you, this is Nathan the prophet speaking on behalf of God to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, right? Talking about the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Ever. So what God does in this moment is he says to David, David, I am now going to establish for you an everlasting kingdom. And it will begin with you, a son of David. We all know him as Solomon. Now, if you know anything about Solomon's story, it gets off on a really good note. Solomon has this amazing opportunity to respond to God's question, what would you like to have? And he says, I want to have wisdom. I want to have a discerning heart. And God blesses him for that. And you see this amazing wisdom, I mean, unparalleled in the ancient world is the wisdom that this man Solomon has. And as a result of all the work David had done in creating kind of this groundwork for the kingdom of Israel, Solomon takes it to an unprecedented golden age. And word gets out all over the known world about the Solomon character and this kingdom of Israel that people start coming to Jerusalem to see what this all is all about. One character in particular that comes is a woman by the name of what? Who? Queen of Sheba. Very good. This is in 1 Kings chapter 10. Now, we don't know where the Queen of Sheba is from. We don't know where Sheba is from. Some think it's North Africa. Some people think it's Saudi Arabia. But the point here is that she represents the nations, and the nations are streaming up to Jerusalem to experience what is happening through Solomon, who is apparently doing this on behalf of God. This is what she says in verse 8 of 1 King 10. After all that she has experienced, after she's seen everything, this is how she summarizes her visit and her experience in Jerusalem with Solomon. She says this, verse 8, How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who is delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. And then gets this. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Of course, this is what would be said. Because this is what God's people were supposed to be about. And the king was the representation of the people of God. And she says, you are here because of justice and righteousness. And if only that would have been true for the rest of Solomon's life. Because what is recounted in 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11 is devastating. And I'm just going to briefly recount it for you. In these three chapters, all of this is going to show up in these three chapters, the text is going to say that Solomon's heart 
was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you sit back and you go, what happened? What happened? It started out so well. What's going on? Well, God foresaw that Israel was going to ask for a king. And so all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God made provisions for when Israel asked for a king, what a king was to do and what a king was not supposed to do. And three things are highlighted in Deuteronomy 17 that a king must never do. The first thing that is listed, he must not have many horses. And he better never get them from Egypt because God says, I never want you going back there again. And you go, okay, what does God have with horses? Right? Because with a horse comes a chariot. And a horse plus a chariot equals a war machine. And God's concern is that a king will build up such a hefty military that they will find their security in their military and not in God and God alone. And God says, you're not allowed to have many horses. And what we find out is Solomon has thousands and thousands of horses. And we also find out that he's importing them from two different locations. One is a place called Q, and the other is Egypt. Not only that. But what we also learn is that the horses Solomon is specifically importing from Egypt, he is exporting to other smaller nations. You know what the Bible is telling us? Solomon became an arms dealer. He actually figured out war is profitable. And he starts exporting to the rest of the world. First thing a king's not supposed to do, Solomon, check. Second thing, you're not allowed to have many wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. No wonder the dude had to be so smart. How do you remember all their names? And God says, I don't want you to have because they're going to pull your heart. They're going to lead you astray. It's exactly what happens. God says, don't have very many women. Don't have very many wives. Solomon, check. The third thing, God says, I don't want you to have much silver or gold. Okay, again, not taking your security in your wealth or in your possessions. And what we learn is it says that Solomon made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And his annual weight that he brought in of gold because they measured it in weight now listen it is 23 metric tons okay 25 regular tons 23 metric tons but listen to how the writer in first king puts it solomon brought in annually 666 talents of gold 666 the writer is screaming what he is doing is evil 1 Kings 9, it says that Solomon built his house, God's house, and his military cities with quote-unquote forced labor. That is code for slaves. 
Now, when God rescues and redeems Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, he constantly says in the Torah, do not forget that you were a slave in Egypt and that I came and rescued and redeemed you. Do not forget that I am a God who cannot tolerate social justice. Do not forget that you are slaves. And here's Solomon with his wealth, with his power and his influence. He doesn't use it to establish and maintain justice and righteousness. He actually builds an empire on the backs of other people. And in a few short generations, the oppressed have now become the oppressors. And God goes, I can't tolerate this. And many would argue that Solomon was the worst king in Israelite history because when his rule came to an end, when he died, this is in 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel divides. And you have a kingdom in the north known as Israel, and you have a kingdom in the south known as Judah. Now, Israel during its time period will go through 19 rulers. Judah will go through 20. One is actually a woman, but she rules as a monarch, so she's included in this number as well. And what we find out is that Solomon's life and rule was its own harbinger of destruction and brokenness that was to come because not only is the country divided but the very nature of the people they are divided with God they are struggling to live into their identity as a kingdom of priests and what's interesting is that you have both for the northern and southern kingdom all of these prophets that come on the scene and who is a prophet in the biblical story a prophet is what I like to call a gap closer. Meaning, a prophet shows up on the scene, a prophet says, this is what God desires, and this is how you're living, there's a gap. So we need to close this gap. And you have some major prophets in the north, Elijah and Elisha, okay? If I need another Elijah illustration, I've got illustration right up front here, okay? He's in the north, all right? Anybody by the name of Elisha here? All right, that was going to be a little more difficult. All right. In the north, we have Elijah and Elisha, two major prophets. In the south, we have a whole slew of them, including a guy by the name of Isaiah. Now, in a moment, I want to show you a passage from Isaiah that represents what's happening in both of the kingdoms. But let me just give you a quick summary statement of what all the prophets are talking about. Because they're really highlighting three things the people are really messing up. The first thing that the people are really struggling with is idolatry. They are worshiping God and other gods and goddesses, or they're worshiping other gods and goddesses over and above God. And the prophets are telling the people, this is not right. The second thing that they highlight is something that you would expect. There is no justice and righteousness in the land. They are not living into Mishpat and Zedekah. And so they highlight this. That makes sense. The third one is going to be a little bit of a head scratcher for you because they're constantly bringing up the issue of Sabbath. You go, well, why are the prophets jumping on this idea of Sabbath? Because in the Bible, Sabbath is a really big deal to God. And it becomes a litmus test as to whether you're living in tune with God and the rhythm of the creation that he has made. 
And so there is this reality that it becomes this litmus test because for the people of Israel, when they struggled to live out a Sabbath, it was really an issue of trust. Because when God says, I want you to take a day off, I want you to trust me that I will still provide for your needs if you live into the obedience of what I'm asking you to do. And so when the people are not living into obedience, either they're saying, God, I find my worth and my value and dignity from my work, not that I am a child of you, but my worth comes from my work, or I don't trust that if I take a day off, you will provide for the needs that I have. And God goes, this is a really great litmus test. And the prophets are bringing this up over and over and over again. And again, both the north and the south are struggling to live into an identity of a kingdom of priests that represent God well. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, but he actually spans a bit of the northern kingdom. I want to read for you what Isaiah highlights about what God's attitude is towards the people. And let me just give you a quick heads up. God's not happy right now, all right? Listen to how this begins. Verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. God's like, the donkey and the ox know what to do, my people are clueless. And then listen to this in verse 13. God says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate with all of my being. If God says I hate them with all of my being, look out. And then it says this. Verse 16, God says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek mishpat. Seek justice. And then everything after this is zedekah. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then God says this. Now you're going to understand this passage in context because this is a passage you probably know oh so well. Come now, let us set of the matter, says the Lord. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And Isaiah says, we got to get things right. You know what? The people couldn't have cared less. And this now leaves God in a conundrum. And the conundrum is this. What do you do when there are the shattered pieces of creation all over the floor, and you want to put the whole thing back together, and you have chosen to do so 
through partnering with humanity, you have given them your words, you have given them their identity, you have said, I will help you on this journey, but what happens when the very body you have enjoined yourself to is for everything you are against? And they don't represent you the way you need to be represented in the world for the nations to come in relationship to God. What do you do? And God looks on this and he says, I can't have this anymore. And the only response right now is exile. And for the northern kingdom, it starts in 722 B.C., because the nation who is ruling the world stage are the Assyrians. And Assyria comes in in 722 BC, and nobody knows for certain if it's a guy by the name of Shalmaneser V or Sargon II, but in 722 BC, they crush and conquer the northern kingdom. Now, Assyria has a foreign policy which where they predominantly will take a conquered area and they will disperse those conquered people to different parts of the empire, have them intermarry with people not their own, their bloodline will thin and then they will be eradicated. And the Assyrians do this with the northern kingdom. Now they do keep the farmers and the poor people in the land and they bring in other people from the empire to now take up residence in the northern kingdom. They intermarry and those descendants are known as the Samaritans. Okay, fun fact for you on that one. Now you have the northern kingdom is obliterated. And then about 150 years later, you have a prophet by the name of Jeremiah who comes on the scene. And he's warning the southern kingdom, listen, if you don't get your act together, what happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to you. And you know what their response is to Jeremiah is? We got the temple. We got the temple. We got the temple. You go, what do you mean we got the temple? What do you mean by that? Well, it's in the southern kingdom of Judah where you have Jerusalem. Because Solomon had built the temple to God, they understood that God's presence resided in Jerusalem. It's where heaven and earth met. And the people of Judah go, God's not going to let his house burn. This is where he lives. We can do whatever we want. Jeremiah's response is, why don't you go to Shiloh? You go, well, that's also an interesting response, Jeremiah. That's because when the tabernacle first came into the land, before the temple, before Jerusalem, it was established in Shiloh. And what happened was, is in 1 Samuel 4, there was a battle against the Philistines. The Israelites take the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. They lose it in the battle. They'll eventually get it back. But what we know from archaeology at Shiloh is that the Philistines, right after that battle, it's the same time period, they come and they burn Shiloh to the ground. Now, apparently, the tabernacle itself was salvaged, but the buildings connected to the tabernacle were burned to the ground. And when Jeremiah says, go to Shiloh, he said, if God let his house burn once, don't think he won't allow it to happen again. And it's exactly what happens. Because in 605 B.C., you have a new empire on the seat of world power. This is known as the Babylonians or the kingdom of Babylon. 
And in 605, their brand new ruler on the throne, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians fight a decisive battle against the allied forces of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. This is at a place called Carchemish. And the Babylonians win. And in that same year of 605, they come in and they take over the southern kingdom of Judah. And we have the first Babylonian deportation. Because the Babylonians have a different foreign policy than the Assyrians. The Babylonians, rather than dispersing you all over the place, they literally uproot the entire community and move it to another location. For the Israelites, this was actually in Babylon. So the whole community is deported to Babylon. But that full deportation isn't going to happen until the third deportation. Okay, so we're just on the first one. Very brief. What Nebuchadnezzar does in 605 is he just starts pulling some of the youngest and brightest and sending them off to Babylon. Four of those are Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and does anybody know the other one? Not their, not their Babylonian names. Hananiah, okay? Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You know them as... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Interesting. You know their Babylonian names, but not their given Hebrew names. But Daniel and his three friends are in that first deportation. There is a second deportation in 597. That is one that Ezekiel is part of. And the great prophet Ezekiel to the southern kingdom is deported to Babylon. But then you have the big one. This is the one, 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has, has enough with these pesky Jews. He comes in and he absolutely decimates Jerusalem and he burns the temple to the ground. And this is the date that absolutely crushed the people. And then he deported the rest of the people over to Babylon. There was one more deportation four years later, 582, but this is the big one right here. And the people are exiled, and they are exiled for 70 years. And you go, well, that's a nice round number, okay? What's going on with the 17-year bit? Well, here's what's fascinating. is in 2 Chronicles 36. Notice this passage in verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation is rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. That all the way back in Leviticus, God says to the people, once you get into the promised land, you work the land for six years and then you give it a Sabbath rest because you are also in relationship with creation. And I'm very interested in the land having a Sabbath as well as you. And apparently the people never gave the land its Sabbath because when they are exiled, yes, it is in part because they're not living in right relationship with God. They're living into idolatry. They're living into no mishpat, no zedekah. They're not doing these things. But what's more is that they're not properly taking care of creation. And God goes, there are ramifications for that. And so they are exiled, and it's 70 years, and the land gets its Sabbath rest. Now, what we know about the Babylonian Empire is that they're not actually on the world stage for very long. Really, it's only about 70 to 75 years. What begins to happen in 559 B.C. is you have the beginning of the rise of the Persian Empire. 
a guy comes to power in Persia by the name of Cyrus the Great, and over the next 20 years, he's like sweeping up the Eastern world until 539 BC, he walks into Babylon, and now you have, oh, yes. All right, hold on one moment. Let me do this one first. When the children of Israel are in Babylon, Okay, this is one of those really cool passages because Babylon is not on the world stage for very long. Okay, so we, don't, we know a, a bunch about Babylon, but they're just not as big and as powerful as most people think. But in Psalm 137, you have the children of Israel who say this. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's like once they got to Babylon, they blew it and they knew it. And they started to recount, okay, so this is now before our Persian time period, okay, is that now they probably started going, oh yeah, there was like this Messiah figure in our text. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, first and foremost when Moses says a prophet like me is going to come along. And then you have passages like Psalms 2, 89, 110, Isaiah 42, Daniel chapter 7. Okay, also talks about all of this. And they're starting to recount this idea, oh, there's a Messiah who's going to come along, who's actually going to get things right, who is going to live into what God desired his people to do. We have blown it and we know it, and we are looking for the coming Messiah. Now, one of the passages, no doubt, they probably had on their mind was Isaiah chapter 9. Very, very famous passage. You will know this right away. Let me begin reading in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawn. Then verse 6. For to us a child is given, to us a son or excuse me, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a Prince of Shalom. Of course he's going to be a Prince of Shalom. And then it says this, he will reign on, or excuse me, of the greatness of his government and Shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Of course, this Prince of Shalom will be about justice and righteousness because there is no shalom without justice. All right, now we jump to our Persian Empire. 539 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great comes in to Babylon, and now Persia is on the seat of the world stage. Cyrus and Persia have a different foreign policy than the nations before them. Their foreign policy is this. We will allow any conquered people that are not in their homeland to return to their homeland and they can rebuild their sacred structures, i.e. for the Jewish people, this would be the temple. So in 538 B.C., 
Cyrus the Great enacts what is known as the Edict of Cyrus in order for the people to return whoever wants to. Two years later, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the very first wave of Jewish exiles return to the land. They then spend about 19, 20 years, and in 516 B.C., they rededicate the temple to God. Now, you have the temple has been rebuilt, and about 60 years later, in 457, you have a guy by the name of Ezra, the priest who shows up, and then on his heels in 445 is a guy by the name of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is responsible for rebuilding the walls. And the Persians are on the stage for a couple of hundred years until you get a strapping young chap by the name of Alexander the Great who comes along 336 BC and he now takes over and Greece is on the stage of the world uh, of the world throne if you will. Alexander the Great over the next 13 years is going to decimate the world. He's going to take over the world and he dies about three weeks before his 33rd birthday. He dies in Babylon of a fever. He is buried in Alexandria. And once Alexander is dead, now his kingdom divides among a number of generals. And what's interesting is that this is actually recounted in the book of Daniel that an entire empire of Alexander the Great would be divided among generals and there would be civil wars, okay? number of things happen during this time period. Just know that one of the remnants of Alexander's empire is a Greek empire known as the Seleucid Empire. They're responsible for causing something called the Maccabean Revolt. It's where you get Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights and we don't have time to go into all of that. But the next key date for you to get on your radar is 63 BC because it's when Rome now takes over the land of Israel. They have been taken over the world at this point, but they come into the land of Israel in 63 BC, roughly 60 years before the time of Jesus. Now here's what's fascinating when Rome hits the world stage is that we now get to go back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. It's actually a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had that Daniel interpreted. And the interpretation was around this idea that there were going to be four kingdoms that started with Nebuchadnezzar, known as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then notice what Daniel 2.44 says. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is that promise all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 of an everlasting kingdom. And when does that everlasting kingdom really take root and have its everlasting presence? When this fourth kingdom comes on the world stage. This is why Paul in Galatians 4.4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And on a little corner of the Roman Empire... 
in a little town called Bethlehem, born to a bunch of poor teenage parents, the eternal son, the second member of the Trinity, sheds his glory, enters into human existence as a baby, and he takes on the name, in English we say Jesus, in Hebrew, Yeshua, which means God's salvation. Because with the birth of Jesus Christ, the salvation of God for the restoration of all things is on the scene. And what's fascinating is in Luke chapter 2, we have the angel and then the angels declaring the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, we read that the angel said to the shepherds in verse 10, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then verse 14, the rest of the angels join in. And they sing, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, shalom, favor to all. Well, you have the shepherds. And then you'll eventually have the magi coming from the east. And they will come to see Jesus, but they come to Jerusalem first. Now, Romans' foreign policy is different than everybody else's foreign policy because when you get a chance to rule the world, you want to do things a little bit differently, okay? Now, for Rome, is that their empire was the largest the world had ever seen. And so they installed local rulers on their behalf to keep the peace and make sure all of the money got sent appropriately to Rome. In the land of Israel at this time, this is Herod the Great. Well, when the Magi come and they say, we're looking for the real king, King Herod, Herod is set out a plan to kill Jesus. And what we have in the Matthew story is that God comes to Mary and Joseph in a dream through an angel and says, I want you to take Jesus and I want you to go to Egypt. But God in the scriptures says, I don't ever want you going back to Egypt again. And yet God goes, go to Egypt. I mean, is God thinking, because they're never going to look for you there. Or is there something more going on? You see, friends, Jesus comes as a Jew who was to demonstrate the greatest expression of who Israel was always supposed to be. And they blew it. The pieces are still on the floor. And when Jesus comes on the scene and God says, I want you to go to Egypt, we are already being tipped off to the reality that Jesus' entire life is going to be on the canvas of the Exodus and Israel's story. And just as Israel's story ramped up with the Exodus coming out of Egypt, Jesus' story is going to ramp up when he has his own Exodus from Egypt because what Israel got wrong, Jesus is going to get right. And so he comes out of Egypt. And we don't get much of his early childhood years. We get one story when he's 12 years old and he's in the temple. And then you have about 18 years later, Luke tells us at about the age of 30, Jesus begins his ministry. But there is someone who is heralding the start of Jesus' ministry. You all know this guy as John the Baptist. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, this is how this all begins. 
in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John has a message. His message is this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And John is proclaiming this message. Now, immediately on the heels of John proclaiming this message, Jesus is baptized. He then spends, by the way, Israel came out of Egypt, and then they went through water, and then they spent how many years in the desert? 40 years, yeah, yeah. So Jesus gets into the water, and then he immediately goes and spends 40 days in the desert because Jesus' story is being lived on the story of Israel. And so then Jesus goes out there, and then we come to Matthew chapter 4. John has upset the apple cart. He's ticked off Herod the Great's son, who is ruling the region that he's doing his ministry. And it's a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. He throws him in prison. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Friends, this is Isaiah chapter 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And now, for the first time on the lips of Jesus... From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John has a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that language in the Greek, which is what we have it recorded in, but if you even take it back to the Hebrew, they're both saying the same thing in both languages. This is often confusing in the church. We'll talk about this towards the end of the night when I get to do my second and final teaching, which won't be nearly as long as this one, but I hope really helpful and dynamic, is that the phrase is at hand literally means the kingdom of God is arriving. And when John's put in prison, now Jesus jumps on the stage in Capernaum, and now Jesus has a message. And then when Jesus now has his very first opportunity to do a synagogue sermon in Luke chapter 4, this, by the way, for those of you um, who, are, who are interested, this is the synagogue in Capernaum that was after the time of Jesus. The foundation of this is where Jesus would have taught. But for this Luke 4, they have not found any synagogues in Nazareth, but this is one from the time of Jesus that Jesus no doubt would have taught in according to a couple of passages. But let me read to you his one and only synagogue sermon because it's all justice and righteousness. He goes into the synagogue. He's going to read from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads and he says this, recorded in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits down and he says, today this has been, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what we see is that from here on, Jesus continues to live out this ministry where he takes on 12 disciples. Why 12? 
because of the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, he's just reliving Israel's story, but he's getting right what they got wrong. And then ultimately, we have this amazing passage in Hebrews chapter 4, where in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about how Jesus has become our high priest. Now, when we use that language, we immediately run to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for us to reconcile us to God. As well we should, because it's 100% true. But there's another aspect to this as well. And this is one of the things that I don't think sometimes we always understand well in the church, is that when Jesus comes onto the scene, we often believe, first and foremost, that Jesus came to die. But Jesus didn't come just to die. Jesus came to live. If Jesus' only purpose was to die, he didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to learn the Torah. He didn't have to take on 12 disciples. He didn't have to live the really hard, itinerant, itinerant rabbinical lifestyle as a rabbi teacher in the land of Israel if his only purpose was to die as a pure, unblemished lamb of God for the sins of the world. He could have just hung out at the Sea of Galilee, sipped his Mai Tais or whatever it is they have down there, gone for a bunch of swimming, made sure he didn't sin, gone up to Jerusalem at the right time, and then died. But he didn't. Because he didn't come just to die, he came to live. And he came to show us what it looks like when God's will and God's way takes on flesh and blood and lives out what God is asking them to do. Jesus is our high priest because he did atone our sins. But as a kingdom of priests, we look to our high priests for the example set on how to model our lives to do what God is asking us to do in the world because we are a kingdom of priests. Does that make sense? Yes, and we're just getting going on this Jesus part, okay? Buckle up here because these next few minutes, I hope, will just go bing for you. Because here's what happens. It's because of how Jesus lives that will eventually cause him to die. So for Jesus, his life and how he lives eventually leads to his death on the cross. And Jesus dies on the cross. And three days later, we have an empty tomb. Now here's the question I have for you really quick. Why do we need an empty tomb? Why do we have crosses in churches but not empty tombs? See, this always confused me for a long time. Why do we need the empty tomb? We have the cross. Clearly, every church shows we have a cross. All right, good. I'm not outing you. I was like, crap, I didn't even look to see if there are. I wish churches had a cross on one side and an empty tomb on the other. Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God said to Adam, Adam, I need you to obey me about this tree. And you can eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Because sin and death, they are linked. Friends, understand. Jesus could not just die on the cross for the sins of the world. 
He had to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but we had to have the empty tomb because the empty tomb validated that the sacrifice was sufficient and what's more, the empty tomb proved that Jesus had conquered death because sin and death, they are linked and you have to conquer both. And here's what makes it even more interesting is that John gives us these really helpful details that when you read John, John tells us that the site of the cross was in the midst of a garden. That when Jesus died for the sins of the world, he did so in the midst of a garden. And what's more, John tells us, is that the tomb he was buried in is also in the garden, which tells us that when Jesus conquered sin and death, once and for all. He did so in the midst of a garden to reclaim which was lost in the original garden. And what John also tells us is that after Jesus does this, he gets mistaken for a gardener. Of course he does! Because the gardener has done what the gardener was supposed to do. And when God said to Jesus, I need you to obey me about this tree, Jesus obeyed him about the tree. And when Jesus went to the cross, that on the cross, Satan struck Jesus' heel, but with the empty tomb, Jesus crushed his head. That's the hope that we have here. Now, here's what's fascinating. Let's go one step further. Notice how Paul says this in Colossians. Because when Paul talks about what happens with the cross and the empty tomb, this is what he says in chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In Colossians 2, Paul's great proclamation is that the cross is sufficient to reconcile us back to God. That is good news. But listen to what Paul says in chapter 1. He says, For it pleased God to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, if you can get your mind around this next idea, it's going to change a lot for you. Friends, the purpose of the cross was not the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of the cross was the restoration of all things, which included the forgiveness of your sins. And this is why this distinction is really important to make. Because when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news, we will often say to people, listen, here's the good news of Jesus Christ, that because of the work he did on the cross, your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. Absolutely, 100% correct. But here's the problem when we say this is the fullness of the gospel. Is that we have just shortchanged 75% of the gospel. Because there are four relationships in life. What the cross did, what Jesus did on the cross, is that the cross did something for us. He reconciled us back to God. 
But the reality is, is that the cross doesn't want to just do something for us, namely reconcile us back to God, is that now that the cross wants to do something in us, because the reality is, is that you can be reconciled to God. You can have the moment. You could have come forward. You could have said the prayer. You could have gotten baptized. You could have had that moment where you say, I have now come into relationship with God and still be fundamentally broken on the inside. The fracturing of ourself our own anger, our own pride, our own arrogance, our own addictions. Jesus says the good news of the gospel is that the power of the resurrection is available to you now. That I don't want to just forgive you for your brokenness. I now also want to mend you of your brokenness. And that the gospel is not only reconciling us to God, the gospel is also reconciling us to ourselves. but the gospel is also reconciling us to one another. The bigotry, the racism, the war, the entitlement, the unforgiveness, the hatred. Jesus goes, I want to do something about that as well. And creation, Romans 8.22 says that the creation groans for the restoration of all things. See, friends, understand something really significant. Salvation in the Bible is never the end game. It's always supposed to be the beginning. That once we come into relationship with God, God goes, I want to do something now in you. And I want to work within you. Because for the, for the biblical story for Jesus, even when Jesus, his last words in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you always, surely to the very end of the age. That for Jesus, he says, he doesn't say go and make converts. He says go and make disciples. See, salvation gets the thing started. But the goal is discipleship. How do we become more like Jesus so that we can partner with God well in this world? And so Jesus lives and he dies, and this is the good news here. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have Pentecost, which, man, this would be so much fun to do. A whole teaching on this would be really cool. Did you know Pentecost was not a new holiday? It's actually the Hebrew festival of Shavuot. And Shavuot happens 50 days after Passover. And here's why this is significant. Because all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, God gives his people his word. It's at least 45 days. Then they have three days of consecration. And then God comes and meets with them. According to Jewish tradition, when God gave his word, he did so on Shavuot, that God rescued and redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt, and then 50 days later, he gave them the most appropriate gift on their journey ahead. He gave them his very word. And then, when you have in Acts chapter 2, and the event that took place at the temple, is that God gives his Holy Spirit. Jesus gives them, Jesus forgives them of their sins, dies on the cross at Passover, And then 40 days later, he's spending with the disciples. He leaves and goes back to God the Father. And then Pentecost literally means 50th day. 
that on the same holiday, that all the way back in the Exodus story, God gave his word, God now gives his spirit the two most appropriate gifts as we go forward. We've been given the word and we've been given the Holy Spirit of God to do the work that God is asking us to do. And now the rest of the New Testament, Paul, John, Peter, they're trying to help us to understand how do we live out this reality. And then we come to Revelation 21 and 22. And friends, just bask in these words because this is how the story is going to end. In Revelation 21, we read this. John, through the revelation he received from Jesus, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Which, by the way, this word new means renewed. It's the same word that's used when it says when you come into relationship with Jesus, you are a new creation. You have been a renewed creation. Same word John is using here. I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea course there's no sea. Sea represents chaos and brokenness. It's gone. And to John, he's like, yes, there is water in heaven. There is a river, people, okay? It's just that there's no sea, because for John, that's chaos. He's talking about brokenness. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne proclaimed, I am making everything new. Friends, recognize this. God doesn't make all new things. God makes all things new. God says at the end of the story, all of the broken pieces, we're going to have it all restored back together. And Revelation 22 says in verse 2, well, we'll start in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. Of course there's 12. That's the number for community, wholeness, restoration. People are living in right relationship. Everything's been reconciled with one another. Of course there's 12. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nation. And no longer will there be any curse. Praise God. This is how the story is going to be. Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God said... I want to put the whole thing back together. And friends, as much as I would like to make all these pieces magically come together. Okay, last weekend I was in Orlando. I got to speak following a world-class illusionist, magician. He could probably do it, all right? He made cell phones disappear. I can't do that. But here's the next best thing that I have, is that what God is going to do in Revelation 22 is that God is going to take all of the pieces and they're going to be all put back together. And friends, the shalom that was shattered in the garden will be restored in the city. And until this amazing moment comes, we are here. <laughs> we are somewhere between 
the end of the New Testament and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And our role and responsibility is to push the story to its conclusion towards the fullness of shalom. And for Jesus, the way that he talked about this, the way that he lived it, was in what he called the kingdom of heaven. Fifty times in Matthew alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 4, verses 43, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. For Jesus, his entire life was understanding and living out the kingdom of heaven. And what I'm going to have a chance to do to end our night is I'm going to do a short teaching to help you better understand the kingdom of heaven. Because when we more understand Jesus' message, we can more better live into the message of Jesus in the world. And for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is something that is already and even more to come when it takes up its fullness at the city at the end of the story. And we'll help you understand that in a little bit. But for now, friends, that is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. <laughs> all right, that was the same time as Moana right there, all right? Here's what we're going to do. A couple real quick things. Is that we're going to give you... We're going to give you about, about a 12-minute break, okay? If I tell you 15, you're going to take 20, and that's fine if you want to do that, okay? We're going to take about a, let's say, 12 to 15-minute break right now, okay? So try to be back in here a little after 25 after. Here's what we're going to do for the rest of the night, though. I have note cards up here. We are going to do a short time of Q&A, but to make sure that our time is structured really well, if you have a question that you want to ask, about what we just tackled, I want you to come up and just write it on the card. I'm going to look through them right before I start, and any questions that are similar, I'm going to hit those first, and we're going to work through as many questions as we can until we hit a certain time because I have a 15-minute teaching that I think will be really, really helpful to you as a way to tie up our night. So you're going to be able to use the bathroom. You can go out through the doors. You're going to get the timeline. Now, more of you came than who signed up for, okay, which is a great thing. If you and your spouse are okay with having one copy for the both of you, take just one, and at the end of the night, anything that's left over, you can grab an extra one for yourself. The last thing as well is that I did have a chance to write a book on the life of Samson, but it's much more about how do we maximize the life that God has given me. Most books written on Samson are written for men, and it's about power and testosterone and all that. I wrote this for teenagers. I wrote this for women. I wrote this for men. I wrote this for Christians, and I wrote this for people who are just trying to understand the faith. It is $10 on Amazon as well, all right? These are actually signed. Uh, it's, it retails at 15 Dollars. If you're interested, we have 50 copies out there that are signed. There's 220 of you here tonight, something like that. So if you're interested, we can only do cash. If you want to do credit card, 
It's on every online store. Feel free to do it. Um, Walking the Text is my personal website. You can also find this teaching, the restoration of all things there. There is also a free discussion guide for individual and small group use. If you're interested in that, you can do that during that time. So let's say 15 minutes. We're going to start a few minutes before 8.30. Friends, we're going to be done by 9. All right? We're going to tackle some really cool things. Grab your outline. Go to the bathroom. We'll see you back here in less than 15 minutes. A couple uh, questions came up about this. One is, first of all, you all got your timeline, right? All right, so you, hopefully that's, that's really helpful for you. Some of you have asked, how can you get your hands on this teaching? So I have a website, walkingthetext.com. This teaching, the restoration of all things, is on there. I actually also have this graphic as a digital download. So for those of you who are digital people, you can find that there. Uh, if it's helpful to you, there's, um, there's almost 100 now video sermons that are recorded. Um, in January, I'm going to launch, launch a brand new site where I'm going to do like 10 to 15 minute teachings every week. People will get them free. Just send your email address and we'll send that to you. So if that's interesting to you or if you want to know more about that, just go to walkingthetext.com. There's a place at the bottom of the page to put your email address in. You'll also be making this available in the audio version, correct, Paul? Yeah. Okay, so the one that I did on my website was about 75 minutes long. I think it was actually 73. Tonight was, I think, almost 90, 80, 88, maybe somewhere around there. So we added a little bit more for tonight. So Paul is going to make the audio available probably on your site somewhere this week. So that's how you can, how you can snag that. Yes, yeah, the, the series is called Kingdom and Empires. So that's what you're looking for, Kingdom and Empires and the restoration of all things. Um, also, some of you asked, yes, you can help clean up afterwards if you actually want to take a piece. For those of you visual tactile learners, to be reminded, we are called to address the brokenness and pain and chaos. Uh, that You can more than welcome to take one of those pieces. Also on walkingthetext.com is, uh, if you are interested, if God ever lays it on your heart and you want to go, on a trip to Israel or to Turkey, um, those trips are there. So that answers a couple of your questions right there. Great question. All these are great questions. Um, so let me handle this one because this one's a relatively quick one. Do we know what language God spoke to Adam in the garden? What was the original language spoken? Uh, nobody knows for certain, but it's most likely uh, Hebrew. So one of the fascinating things about Hebrew is that it is a language where people really struggle to know even how it came into existence. It's one of those mysteries about ancient language, and it has been said that Hebrew is God's language. Hebrew functions unlike any of the other ancient languages. So Hebrew seems to be the language that God always uses whenever he's speaking uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. So... Um, what will happen at the coming, uh, the second coming of Jesus? And the idea of the second coming is that Jesus, when Jesus comes, and by the way, we don't have time to get into this. This is its own conversation. But one of the tough things about Revelation is that most people don't understand why Revelation was ever written in the first place. Most people think Revelation is a letter that Jesus had John write that John delivered and then, in a sense, said to these people who were being persecuted, hey, hold on to this letter for more than 2,000 years, and then it's going to make sense. It's not. Does it have end times, future stuff in it? Yes, but it is first and foremost 
a letter written to a persecuted people under the boot of the Roman emperor Domitian, who was so hated even by the Romans that when he died, his name was given damnatio memora, a damnation of memory. They scratched his name off every sculpture and out of every document because they were ashamed that he was actually ever an emperor of Rome. He was persecuting the church in unprecedented ways. And what Jesus does in the most brilliant way is he has John write a letter to all of these church communities who are being persecuted. Jesus has John write it down in apocalyptic language because it was a literary genre that the Romans did not understand. And Jesus ensured that if a Roman soldier got his hands on a letter, they wouldn't understand why these stupid Jews were talking about Babylon when Babylon was a thing of the past. It's brilliant how Revelation is constructed. We don't know a ton about what the second coming is, is going to be other than that when Jesus comes, he's going to reconcile and make sure that everything is made right. He is going to um, usher in his, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And whether that, how the thousand years works, regardless of where you're coming from from that, um, that's its own discussion, but Jesus is going to make things right. And the way that I look at it and all of the study and research that I have done is that I trust that God is simply going to do what's right. That what I don't know and I can't understand, I am not going to put time and energy to try to understand something that I don't necessarily understand because I believe God has given us enough in the text to know what we're supposed to do. And that's what I want to be about, which is this whole restoration of all things peace by the way all right so i probably just messed up some of you but that's all right um <laughs> tell me more about the statement that we're called to make disciples not converts does this mean leading people to salvation through christ is not the goal if not then clarify what is the goal of discipleship making fabulous okay here's the one thing that kind of irks me a lot about um just the tradition that i grew up in is it's, it's all about how many salvations did we get. Let's record that. Let's announce that number. And it's all about let's create the right kind of opportunity for people to enter into relationship with God, which I am not against creating a right environment to be able to do that. But if we think that the purpose is just that someone says, yes, I am now a follower of Jesus, then let's not make it seem like, well, you now have a ticket to some heavenly amusement park and you can live your life however the heck you want. This is why I think so many Christians are so bored, as they've been taught a gospel that says that all you got to do is get right with God and we're, the whole goal is to get out of here and to go somewhere else. And I don't think that's the perspective of Jesus. I'll help you understand that in just a few moments. But that what Jesus is saying is, is that salvation is never the end game, it's the beginning. But in order to move towards being a disciple, which is more and more like Jesus, it has to begin with conversion. So it's not that conversion is bad, it's just let's not stop there. Because that's never the end game, it's the beginning. The goal is, as Jesus said to his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So once we come into relationship with Jesus, baptism is a responsibility that we're supposed to enter into, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you know what Jesus has commanded? Do, do we know that? 
right? And that's the idea is that once we come into relationship, we grow with our awareness of what does it mean to, to grow in being like Jesus so that we can continue to experience the goodness that God wants to do in our lives and that God can work through us to impact other people, okay? And I'll flesh that out a little bit more um, when I do this last 15-minute teaching, which I have two minutes left to do. So, um, last question here, which is, can you talk more about the difference between God's vision for social justice and the world's version of social justice, okay? This is, um, God desires how uh, Zedekiah is used in the scriptures, is that God desires everybody to have their basic needs met. Proper water, proper sanitation, proper health care, the basics. God's desire is that in showing people and helping to provide for those needs, that those who do that are trying to also help people to understand that this is the heart of a God who desires they have the dignity of a toilet, of clean water, of all of these things. Where there becomes a distinction is that Jesus is desire, and this is where it really becomes apparent in Matthew 7, this is Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many, many miracles? Then Jesus says, says, then I will tell them plainly, Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Okay? This word knew, K-N-E-W in our English, is the Greek word akuo, which comes from the Hebrew word yada. Yada is a word that means to know experientially. In the Hebrew scriptures, knowledge is never abstract. It is always understood in connection to an experience. There's a relationship. How does this come about? Or what, you know, why are we talking about this here? Is because when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were to just use a term of endearment or respect for Jesus in the ancient world, you would use the word rabbi. If you wanted to say, no, you are my rabbi, and I am patterning my life after you, you use the word Lord. So when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, just because you make an intellectual affirmation that I am the Son of God doesn't mean that you're in. That's part of it, but this is why Jesus says, but only those who do the will of my Father. Meaning that there is a faith, yes, that's how we're saved, but then how do we seek to walk it out? Jesus says, if you're just going to make a proclamation and then the rest of your life looks nothing like me, then the question is, is are you really ever saved in the first place? And so this is why for Jesus, it's not just about salvation. It's about a lifestyle that gives, gives witness to the fact that we are in relationship to Jesus. But then likewise, on the other side, Jesus says, listen, those who will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles, meaning we did really good things. You can think this in terms of social justice. Jesus will say, away from me, evildoers. I never knew you. We were never in relationship. 
that for Jesus, it is the affirmation, yes, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah, you are the Savior, you died on the cross for the sin, yes, 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 and we're going to live this out in a certain way. Jesus goes, it can't just be an intellectual affirmation without good deeds, and it can't just be good deeds without intellectual, you know, a relationship. They have to go together. So for Jesus, social justice is something where, yes, you take care of the needs of the dignity of those who do it, but also recognize we don't want to just stop with the social good deed. We want to do everything we can to help people enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. Is that helpful? Okay. All right. All right, here we go. Hold on to your seats because we're going to fly through this last part as well. Okay? Those are the questions. You can come up and have cards. Um, you can come up and grab pieces afterwards and all of that good stuff. Here's what I want to tackle in this. This is from Matthew chapter 3. This is the baptism of Jesus. This, and until a few years ago, was one of the most confusing things for me to understand what in the world is going on. And it is a lock and key to open some really amazing things. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is going, what are you doing? And rightfully so. In John 1.29, John is recorded as saying when he sees Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a reference to the Passover lamb. He's saying Jesus is the pure, unblemished lamb of God. It's why he could be a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He had no sin. Here's why John's confused. Because in Mark 1, 4, So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His baptism is for repentance of sins. And by the way, John isn't the one actually dunking. It's his message that is causing people to go into the Jordan River and to come out, which is baptism that way. So here's the interesting thing is Jesus comes to be baptized. And the question we have to ask is, why does Jesus want to be baptized if he has no sin? This is why John is confused. He's like, no, I think you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. Well... We read this during the time of uh, our long piece there. John the Baptist's message is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And I made reference to the fact that come near literally means it is arriving. It is on the scene. Not in its fullness, but in its beginning stages. John is arrested and Jesus has the exact same message. And what we have wedged between these two in Matthew is you have the baptism and the temptation. Now the question becomes, what is it about the kingdom of heaven that between these two introductions of these messages, we have the baptism and the temptation, and primarily because Jesus wants to be baptized, and John's like, but I do that for the forgiveness of sins, and yet you're coming, why? Well, let's go to Psalm 115, verse 16. Because this is a helpful passage. Because the psalmist writes, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to humankind. The writer here is talking about realms or kingdoms. Now notice how Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy defines kingdom. It's the range of your effective will. What you want to have happen, happens. And so what we have is in Psalm 116, 15, that right or 115, 16? Yeah, 115, 16. The highest heavens belong to the Lord. 
it's talking about the realm of heaven. That heaven is a realm where things are as God intends it to be. God's will, God's way happens in heaven. And we would all go, yep, that sounds about right. But then the writer says, but the earth he has given to humankind. Which is the writer's way of saying, yeah, but earth functions a little bit differently. To which we say, you do not need Sherlock Holmes to make that observation, right? We recognize that earth functions differently than the realm of heaven. Because however you want to say it, heaven and hell, good versus evil, shalom versus chaos, these opposing forces are duking it out here on earth. Now, do I hold that there is a literal heaven and a hell? Yes, I do. What I'm helping us understand is that earth is a battleground where the remnants of both heaven and hell are duking it out here. I mean, we even say something like you have a tragedy that happens. If I'm not mistaken, there was a tragedy this week, okay? People probably use the language, wow, that is absolute hell for them. Because we basically say this is not what it was supposed to be. This is chaos. This is brokenness. This is anti-God. That this is the reality that we enter into because earth is currently in pieces, right? So, earth functions a different way. So that when the writer is talking about kingdom of heaven, when John talks about kingdom of heaven, when Matthew records this for us, one of the distinctions that people make is they think kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are different. They're actually not. It's the talking about the same thing. And this is where it gets confusing. The kingdom is of God and God's realm where everything is as God intends it to be is heaven. But here's where it gets confusing. One of the substitutes for God for the Jewish people, and Matthew is the most Jewish of the four gospel writers, this is why he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, is that heaven is in reference to God. Can you see how that can get confusing? All right, some of you are like, I am still confused, okay? It's the idea that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing, and this is how you can define it. That the kingdom of heaven or God is the rule and reign of God advancing here on earth, bringing healing and wholeness. This is why when John shows up and Jesus is on the scene, Jesus' restoration project, he uses this language of kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't have time to go into the etymology of this, but this was developed in the intertestamental period with the rabbis. When they said kingdom of heaven, there were certain connotations associated with that for the Jewish people. And one of the things that made the Jewish people struggle to accept Jesus as Messiah is that their assumptions around how the Messiah was going to usher in the kingdom of heaven is different than what Jesus did. Okay, this is why and sometimes Jesus says, go tell everybody, and other times Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Okay, it depends on the area, the assumptions. We are able to reconstruct a lot of that from ancient sources and whatnot. But this is what Jesus is all about. And when Jesus comes to the Jordan River, he comes to be baptized. But here's the language that is used. It says that when Jesus came out, out of the water, it said that the Spirit of God was descending on him like a dove. Now, why this is interesting is that this phrase, like a dove, hearkens us back to Genesis 1-2. Before God spoke and brought order to the chaos, 
there is water and there is chaos. And the way that Genesis 1-2 says is that the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word hovering here is the Hebrew word merchafet, and it means to flutter as in a dove. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a translation from the Hebrew into Aramaic, which was known as the Targums. And the Targums, like modern translations today, would add some words to help make sense of the translation to help people know more of what's going on. Notice the Targum of Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and empty, darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the waters like a dove. So when we have the Spirit of God descending like a dove, this is a reference back to the chaos before God spoke and essentially entered in and then brought order to chaos. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am coming to the Jordan River to address chaos because interestingly, the Jordan River was the only body of water we know in the ancient world that had no religious tie to it. There was no god or goddess connected to it. Every other body of water did. But in this sense, this is also interesting, as some of you have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it talks about that the Jordan River is a picture of chaos. So when Jesus comes down to the Jordan River, he is talking about this idea to John that I want to get into the water, not because I have sin, but that I am putting sin and death on notice, and I am coming after the chaos of the world. And the only place in the land of Israel that resembled the chaos was the Jordan River. This is why people went to John to be baptized because when they went under the water, it was like their impurities went with the chaos of the water. And so Jesus goes here and it's fascinating because last summer I had the opportunity to have a group and we were around the Jordan River and a bunch of these military hel helicopters started flying over by. And at first I was annoyed because they're really loud and I had to wait for a little while. But then I was like, actually, this is a great picture. Because this means the world is still broken. There is still chaos in the world. Because we have military helicopters. Things are not made right in our world. And what was even more interesting is that night, one of the participants went back and took a picture of one of the helicopters as they were flying over by and then showed me the next day. He goes, I was actually taking a picture of them and I realized they were taking a picture of me as well. So Jesus comes to the Jordan River and he jumps into the water to say, I am coming after the chaos. And it's why in Matthew chapter 4, he is immediately sent out in the desert to be tempted by the devil. Why? Because at his baptism, this is an act of war on Satan. And this is why immediately following the baptism, Jesus is tempted in the desert by the, by the devil because the devil knows at the moment of Jesus' baptism, Jesus responds, receives the Holy Spirit, and now Jesus is basically saying, I am coming after you and everything you stand for. And Satan says, then let's go to the desert and let's duke it out. And Jesus goes, round one, here we go. And Jesus goes out, and then this is where it gets really personal for me and you. Because after Jesus pronounces, after he comes out of the desert, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, that through me the rule and reign of God is going to advance here on earth, Jesus, right after this, 
the first thing he does is he goes and he gets disciples. Because he says, I am the one who is going to inaugurate this kingdom of heaven. And just like God did with Adam, and just like God did with Abraham, Jesus comes to disciples and he says, do you want to partner with me in the restoration of all things? Because I am going to live my life in such a way, and I'm going to teach you how to do the same, that God's shalom will push out the chaos and brokenness in the world. And Jesus says, are you in? Because when it comes to Matthew chapter 6, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is now then teaching those disciples who want in, this is how you pray and live your life. Our Father who is in heaven, that realm where things are as you intend it to be, our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Every time you say the Lord's Prayer, you are declaring, not only God, would you make your kingdom come here and push out the chaos, but would you help me to join you in this? Because every good Jewish boy and girl knew that when you offered a prayer to God, you recognized that in part you're asking God to do something, but that you're joining God in the answer. That when it comes to this whole idea that the kingdom is the range of your effective will, our responsibility every single day is to take our own little kingdoms and orient it to God's kingdom because we have influence, we have power, we have the ability to impact people's lives. And the idea is, is that we take our little kingdoms and we orient it every single day to God's kingdom because, yes, the cross has done something for us. And yes, the cross wants to do something in us, but it doesn't end there because God's desire is that the cross would do something through us. That as we come into relationship with Jesus, as we continue to experience the goodness and wholeness and shalom of Jesus Christ, God goes, now I want you to be a conduit through which my kingdom can advance here on earth. That I can push out the brokenness and the pain and the chaos and reinstate shalom. But just like all the way back at the story, I'm looking for people to join me. And God goes, will you join me in this endeavor? Will you get into the Jordan River with me? Will you join me in the restoration of all things? Because God, just like he was at the beginning, is looking for people to join him in the greatest adventure in human history. And God's question is, do you want to join me in ever-deepening levels? Because if so, it's going to be a ride, and we're going to bring some serious shalom in this world. Friends, that is what we are called to do. And I pray that you live ever more deeply into the fullness of this big, massive story in the restoration of all things. Thank you. Oh, are you encouraged? Yeah. There's a lot to do and uh, a lot to take in tonight, but I am so thankful that you came. I really am, and uh, I'm so grateful for Brad. Um, he's had a big impact on my life, and, and I trust that he has done the same for you tonight, and just the opportunity to get to know him a little bit more now through his ministry and through uh, walking through the uh, walking the text, and so uh, be sure to check that out. I'm, I'm not going to try and add a lot more. 
You know, do you want in? Uh, one of the things that we were praying this week is that your response, our response tonight would just be, simply be a yes. Yeah, I want in. And maybe for some of you tonight, it's just kind of a recommitment of sorts. But, uh, but it begins tonight. It begins as we walk out of the room right now. In every environment and situation and interaction we find ourselves in, to just say, you know, I'm, I'm living for the Lord. I, I want in. I, I want to I live like Jesus uh, did and, and have him live through me. And so I want to tell you about a next step. Uh, just something, a, a save the date uh, for you. Well, for any of you, even if Genesis isn't your church, but certainly for Genesis, Saturday, December the 2nd. Uh, we are going to be hosting a seminar event here where we just talk more and more about this, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to put some practical tools uh, in your hands. We're still kind of piecing together this event. We're really excited. We feel like this is a, a big next step for our church when it comes to disciple-making, uh, when it comes to living in the we are here right now. So write that down Saturday, December the 2nd. We'll talk more about it as we get closer to it, uh, but don't forget that. Will you join me in thanking Brad one more time? Can we give him one more hand? Let's stand together and uh, let's pray and be dismissed. Uh, Father in heaven, we are so encouraged. I am so encouraged tonight. I know so many people here and just, you know, review and, you know, for some people just putting some pieces together, revisiting some things. Uh, you are a great God and we are thankful for you, Lord, and for your son, Jesus Christ, and uh, for your work through him and in us and for us, Lord, and now what you want to do through us here in the world. Um, I, I pray, my, my prayer is, our, our prayer is that it would be a yes from each of us tonight, Lord, um, that we are ready to follow you, that we want to continue following you. We want to follow you more deeply, more passionately. We want to know your word. We want to understand what it means that we are empowered by your spirit, and we are trusting you for even greater things. And we know that you've given us a very specific mission here at Genesis of helping people find their way back to God, and that requires every single one of us. And so... Will you continue your work uh, in us, God? We thank you for Brad and for his ministry. Uh, pray that you continue to bless him and thank you for his influence and the gifts that you've given him, God. Uh, use each of us, Lord. We are grateful for you. We thank you, God. We thank you for this night, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. Hope to see you again soon.